LPMX Network Production. A cerebral and experienced look into the racing action from the week that was. This is Industry Seating with Jason Thomas. Presented by Pirelli Tires, Guts Racing, Plum Creek Funding, Pro Glow Wash, Works Connection, Bass Foundry, TL Speed Shop, Concept Coatings Design Co., Grandstone Boots, and Fly Racing. Welcome to the Industry Seating Podcast. My name is Jason Thomas. It is Saturday, February 17th, and we're going to talk about Glendale Supercross that was a week ago today. What happened? What do we think is going to happen the rest of this championship? And did we learn anything from round six? I think we did, but it feels like every time you think you have a an inside line or some sort of, uh, you know, final thought or you're on the right path with this championship, you get proven to be silly really quickly. So I'm not going to uh, pretend to have it all figured out. It's been a great series though, right? Like the unpredictability and the parody, you know, we've used that word quite a bit on podcasts and television and everywhere else, but deservingly so. That's what's made this year so great is we don't know what's going to happen. Every single time the gate drops, we have no clue who's going to win. We're already kind of matched and on pace to to break the number of winners in a season uh so that's that's awesome you know typically it's like five and we're already there um and and maybe we don't get any more who knows but you know i I think anderson might get one i think tomac might get one uh it's hard to think they won't find a way with how well they're riding this year so we could have a big number you know I, i don't know who else could maybe get in there i'm sure other guys are are angling to find their way to, to get a win, but it's been phenomenal uh, on that front. Before we get too far, let's thank the sponsors of this podcast, Pirelli Tires, Guts Racing, Plum Creek Funding, Concept Coatings Design Co. Don't forget there's a brand new promo code with them, Concept10 at checkout. will save you 10%. Works Connection, Pro Glow Wash, TL Speed Shop, Grant Stone Boots, and Fly Racing. Thank you to all of them for being on board for the 2024 season. And the 250 class, I should say, I want to say it kicked it off. It really didn't. You think about the way they've switched around the heat races, the 450 heat races go first. But in the main events, that's what we're going to talk about. And the 250 main event was first. What did we see? RJ Hampshire wins. And in the most unlikely way possible, he wins through dot, 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 patience with a question mark. Uh, That is not the RJ Hampshire way. He is usually, uh, I don't want to say, out of control is not fair, um, because I think he is in control. He just takes a lot of risk, and he rides on the edge of his control. Now, putting myself and my racer hat back on, which has been off for a very long time, that was not my style. And if you look at a guy like Tomac or Roxon or Jet, most of the time, that's not their style either. Uh, it, It is a unique style where he's taken big chances. And I don't think you can really get away with that on a 450. So I don't, that's why, you know, I'm going through my list of 450 riders and most of them don't fall into that category because I don't think there's any sort of longevity 
that can be sustained like pushing the limit that hard. So we'll see what that kind of turns into for RJ long-term. I mean, he's already over 30. So <laughs> to, to think he's going to be doing this forever in the same uh, on a 250, maybe he just never gets on 0450. I don't know because he's got another year of 250s left. But he's making really good money on a 250, and he's winning races and doing all the things. So who knows? Maybe he's just the Mike Brown where he just never really makes the full-time move to the 450 class. We'll see. But as long as he can keep winning and being the contender on the 250, I can understand why they would keep him there. I think he wants to move to the 450 long-term. We saw how good he was in Daytona in that heat race in 2023. So he does have promise. I think he will just have to change his ways a little bit and back it down. Now, you could also argue that the 450 allows you to back it down because you have so much more power. You don't have to just ring the motorcycle out for every ounce of power and push the corner so hard to carry momentum because you can get that momentum back extremely quickly on a 450. So that does make sense, right? If in three years, if you said, yeah, RJ's fine on a 450, he doesn't really take risks at all. I would point to that as why is saying, yeah, the 450 allows you to go really fast without pushing all that risk. The other side of that coin is guys like Hunter Lawrence, guys like Jet Lawrence, guys like Kitchen. There are lots of guys that go really fast on the 250 without taking so much risk. So it can be done. It's not like the only way to go fast on a 250 at that level is to up the risk factor. You know, it doesn't have to be that way, right? Jordan Smith does it. RJ Hampshire does it. But it's not the only way because Jet, we never really saw Jet get out of control. I mean, very rarely was Jet on the limit of his control. So it's, uh, I think there's there are levels to it, but I think it's fair to assess that for RJ to be his best self, he has to take those chances. He has to ride that way to to win, and that's okay. Like he's he's paying a price for it at times, and he's reaping the rewards for it at times, and that's that's just the natural way of things when you're. When you're sitting on the, you know, riding the fence of control, you're going to get both sides. You're going to get the the penalty and the reward, and that's, you know, that's that's normal. It's what we should expect. Levi Kitchen, he didn't really have the pace, I don't think, to win. Um, you saw Jordan be able to pass him. You saw RJ be able to pass him, but he's hanging in there. And you know, the biggest thing that I'm looking at with Kitchen that has really propelled him this year are the starts. Go back to when he was at Monster Star Yamaha, he would have such brilliant days, win motos, run up front in main events, but it was so start dependent and the starts were all over the map. Like he could not find any consistency whatsoever with his starts. And I don't really know why. Actually, that's not true. He's He's been pretty transparent as of late as to why. And he says that the delivery of the power on the Kawasaki is much smoother so, and, and what that means for those of you who have never raced or raced at this level or whatever, when you're exiting the starting line, doesn't mean if it's dirt, doesn't matter if it's dirt or a grate or concrete or whatever, you want the power delivery to be linear. And what that means is you don't want it to be too abrupt, which is going to cause you to want to wheelie or get a lot of wheel spin. You want it to be really smooth and predictable to where you're getting maximum traction and drive forward. And not just drive forward, but smooth drive forward where the front wheel's not going to want to lift, right? They have whole shot devices on, but it's still, if your initial movement is to go up 
with the rear, like the front end, that's going to cause the rider to want to pull the clutch in, right? Their fingers are already on it, but the rider is using the clutch as a power delivery system. And when they feel the front end want to lift as far as wheeling, that's going to just as a natural instinctual reaction, cause them to pull the clutch in to control that. And that's just from years and years and years of doing this. And their brain is wired to react that way. They're not even thinking about it. It's just happening, right? Because of muscle memory. But what happens when you pull the clutch in, right? That disallows power to be delivered to the rear tire and you lose drive. You lose, you know, speed forward. And and instead of being another two inches forward on the start, you're two inches back. And that it can be the difference between a good start and a bad start. And it always is because you extrapolate that lost momentum and lost drive over the course of the whole straightaway. And yeah, it turns into, uh, it doesn't have to be a bad start, but you're not going to get a good start. And that's where Kitchens really make, turn the corner. He's turning those mid-pack starts into whole shots and top three starts. And it's been really consistent. Like he's done it pretty much every time. So when he says something like that, it resonates with me because I have had experiences like that with my own career. Honda, for as good as those bikes were, you go back like, oh, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, the bike was incredible. Good frame. They kept improving the engine. They kept making steps forward because remember that bike was new and it was getting better and better and better. And in 08, it was, it wasn't perfect, but it was really damn good. And then, but the, the challenge of it was that it wasn't great on the starts and it was partially because the power was really strong, but it's also the, the frame geometry the, the front end wanted to lift on starts. It just wasn't um, super predictable getting starts. So I really was inconsistent that way. And a lot of guys on Hondas would agree. Kyle Lewis, maybe not so much. It's one of the best starters I've ever seen in my life. But most guys would say the Honda, its initial reaction when you would release the clutch, the front tire would want to come up. That was just the characteristic of the motorcycle. When I switched to a Suzuki in 2009, it was completely different. It was like one of the first thing I first things I noticed was that the bike was much more balanced and its initial reaction out of the starting gate was forward. And that in the end is a monumental difference of getting good starts versus bad starts. And I can remember going like, you know, my first races on these motorcycles would be overseas, right? So I'd get a new bike, whether it was the 07 Honda, the 08 Honda, it would be brand new. And the first time I would really get to race, it would be in, like German Supercross or Barcelona or England or somewhere, right? And so you started to learn the tendencies. And when I got the Suzuki, the first race I went to was in Montreal. I got the whole shot and I ran away with it. Then I went to Germany. Same things all happened. I I won the, the German Supercross championship and I was whole shotting every single time. And I, I remember coming back to the U S and I'm like, I'm going to get starts all season. Like this is, it's just the motorcycle. Like the first movement it makes out of the starting gate is forward. And I'm ahead of everybody before they've even reacted. So it was a frame geometry. And also the bike was slow. <laughs> and I don't mean to, I don't mean to say bad things about that motorcycle, but it was a pretty slow bike and stock trim was well, a, a slow bike doesn't have that explosive power off the bottom to raise that front end, right? So all those things work together. If you can rev it high enough to where the initial movement is forward, even if it's slow, it's controllable. And I was just shooting at rocketing out of the starting gate 
and I would be ahead of everybody, clear my handlebars of them, and then I had to start covered before they could even react to it. So that's what I – sorry for the long story, but I'm trying to relate what Levi Kitchen is going through and the positive changes you're seeing in the starts. All those things are very relatable and applicable to why Kitchen is getting good starts on the Kawasaki. Now, I don't know if the frame geometry is the same or the power, but in theory and concept, that's what's happening is the, the motorcycle is just m much more conducive for him getting good starts. And look at Forkner at uh, Detroit, hole shotting every single time. You look at Seth Hamaker, he always gets good starts. Uh, I don't know about Joshimoto. Like, he doesn't seem like he can get a good start at all on any bike. So I'm just going to say he is an anomaly. Uh, but everybody else seems to really be getting this thing figured out on the Kawasaki. Jordan Smith, I mean, he's doing Jordan things, right? Like, what are you going to say or do? He's been great, but he's also thrown it away. You know, the, the first crash, I think he would have he would have won that race pretty easily. I think that was what was coming to him in Glendale if he doesn't fall over. Then he makes a really pivotal mistake not seeing the, the red light and he didn't and, – and I was mistaken on the rule. I didn't think you could triple there, but you could. But you also have to be aware that the guy in front of you, Levi Kitchen, is not tripling, right? And there are cues. It's not just, well, I didn't see him until it was too late. No, you can hear his bike. You can see his body language. And when he is not accelerating towards that jump, you have to respond to that. You can't just fully commit the way Jordan did. It wasn't like Jordan backed out of it and then cased it or anything like he landed on top. Like he did the whole, he went for the whole thing. And I, I think that was just a little bit on Jordan. You could say it was partially on Levi for, for not knowing the rules. Like I didn't, but also you have to blame Jordan for not being aware of what kitchen was doing in front of him and not reacting and not being responsive. And, you know, you have to have situational awareness, I guess is the, the best way I can put it. Uh, and he didn't seem like he had any at all. So those are the mistakes I was worried about with Jordan Smith. You know, we've talked about him a lot. Um, it, it's what's really plagued him over the, the extent of his career, to be honest. Uh, this is the best version of himself we've seen, maybe ever. You know, if you want to say 2017 was better, I, I don't have an argument. I would say this, he's faster now than he was then, just because motorcycles have progressed and he's his skill set has improved, surely, in, in seven years. But... This is the best positioning for championship and all those things that we've seen him in. So I don't know the way this plays out, but we're still seeing Jordan be Jordan. And that's really the, the point. He was so consistent through the first three rounds. And I was talking with Will and she was kind of theorizing that he's older and figured it out now. And I'm like, I don't know. You know, maybe you could 100% be right. That happens with maturity. But, you know, a, a zebra doesn't change his stripes right? Like that's a thing. People are who they are. Their tendencies may be toned down, but it's very rare that a rider's tendencies completely dissolve. Like it, it, that just really never happens. Uh, so, I mean, you could say Eli Tomac, right? The weirdo rides from years ago. We've seen them still. We saw it in Detroit. Like it's still a thing with Eli this many years later when we thought he's a totally different guy on the Omaha. Maybe not so much. Maybe people are who they are. And maybe they can do things to improve it and reduce the likelihood or uh, how often it occurs. But it seems like every so now and again, 
you're going to see someone show, you know, maybe a weakness or, or a hole or a chink in their armor. Um, that's, I think, what we're seeing with Jordan. Shimoda gets on the podium, but, I mean, this these starts are just absolutely annihilating his opportunity. And you could say his career. I, I think that's overstating it. You know, he was second in the Super Motocross World Championship last year. He went, he's won races. Like, to say it's derailing his career is, is strong, in my opinion. I don't, I don't think that's fair. He's a factory Honda rider. He's making a ton of money. He's the pride of Japan as far as motocross goes now. So I I wouldn't state it that way, but maybe realizing and maximizing his potential, you could point to the starts and say, that's the problem. I think that's fair. And I don't see how you could really argue it. So as we do in the uh, on the Industry Seating Podcast, we talk about the power rankings. And this week, a little bit of a shakeup, but not crazy. Um, I don't think we saw enough to really change everything. But I had to rethink a few things, and I kind of went back and forth on a few guys and had to really uh, just kind of question my resolve on a few of these choices and consider if I had them ranked too high or too low. But I landed where I landed, and we'll get into them. But starting it off at number 10 is Malcolm Stewart, and I think this is Malcolm's first appearance this year, and rightfully so. He has been... I don't want to say he's been terrible. That's that's not right. He has had a terrible 2024. How about that? Um, I don't think it's all been the riding, but crashing and bad starts are a part of it. And, you know, he got caught up in some pileups and other things that weren't his fault. But the result is how these guys are graded. You know, they're they're judged and paid based off of results. So in the end, I'm going to have to do the same thing. And, and he got in the top 10 this week. I saw some signs of life there. So I've decided to put him at 10, and we'll see. Maybe he goes right back out. If he doesn't show up in Arlington and do something, I'll take him right back out of this thing without any hesitation whatsoever. At number nine is Hunter Lawrence, and he finally showed us some signs of life. Let's be fair. It has not been the debut 450 season that Hunter wanted, that I think Honda necessarily wanted. I have some friends in the industry that were really high on Hunter. Their expectations were what I would consider unrealistic. Um, you know, they view him or viewed him as the same as Jet. And I kind of, I pushed back pretty hard. Not that I'm right or my opinion means more than theirs. It's, it's just an opinion. But I pushed back pretty hard because I simply don't think they're the same guy. You know, Jet is, he, he could go on to be one of the greats ever, right? And Hunter is an awesome rider. And he's a 250 champion, and he, you know, he's going to have a wildly successful career in this sport and be set for life financially. I, I firmly believe all those things. But he is not Jet. That is, that is my firm belief, and you're not talking me out of that. I don't care who tried to paint a picture or sell me on any other version of that story. I, I don't believe that to be true. So when I see Hunter running around – eight to 12 in his first year, it doesn't shock me. Like look at Christian Craig, look at how difficult it's been. Justin Cooper, that's been the norm. That's been what a rookie season in this class looks like. But to Hunter's credit, he really was better this weekend. You know, a fifth in the main event is really good, you know, and, and okay, sure. Jet passed him and pulled away, but that's, I mean, that's what I expect anyway. So I thought this was a great ride for Hunter. I thought it uh, really showed some improvement. You know, he had been under, 
not pressure, but some encouragement. And Honda had been pushing him to get more aggressive and, and don't be intimidated by the class. Like really start to get in there and force your way into the mix with these guys. And you saw that kind of playing out where he stepped up to the plate much more than he had been uh, there in Glendale. So good job to him. Great ride. Uh, way to show that you can be in the mix with, uh, yeah, with the biggest names in the sport. And number eight, Dylan Ferrandis. And this is the most consistent Dylan Ferrandis has ever been in Supercross. And you could say, well, that's a low bar. Okay, fine. That's okay. Um, but it doesn't change the fact. It doesn't change the validity of my statement. Uh, it just means that he's had a really rough go in 450 Supercross. But I like what I've seen. You know, he hasn't taken unnecessary chances. He hasn't put himself in harm's way. He's taken what's come to him. Um, he's run around the top 10 every race. That's, you know, he's firmly established himself as a top 10 450 Supercross rider in 2024. So I don't have anything but praise to give him. You know, if, if you were expecting him to be a podium guy each week, then, may, you know, okay, I don't know why you would think that. I don't know what you'd be pointing to in his history of 450 Supercross to think that's likely. But uh, in my opinion, uh, yeah, congratulations. It's been a, a, you know, a grade A season so far for Dylan Ferrandis. And if he keeps up this level of performance and stays healthy and keeps building his fitness and confidence, this summer he could be in the mix for podiums each week. You know, I don't know if he's going to win the title or anything, but we all know he's a better motocross rider than supercross rider. Like that's not breaking news. So I think it sets up really nicely for him this summer if he can continue on the path that he's on right now. So good for him. Uh, number seven, and this feels unfair, man. It feels really unfair for AP to be seven. I don't know how I'm here, but it's the same conversation I have with myself each week that I look at the guys in front of him and I think they're all maybe riding a little bit better than him. Uh, the only argument I could really make is Anderson. and. You know, if AP didn't crash in Glendale and Anderson doesn't get second in Glendale, then I think I have to change that. Like, I don't think I can put them in these two positions, but that's what happened. AP threw it away and Anderson didn't and Anderson got on the podium again. So I have them at seven and six, AP seven, Anderson six, and I, I feel like it's justified. Um, you could say, okay, AP won a race. Anderson hasn't. Sure. No problem. But Anderson's in really good, really good this year. And, you know, I am i don't know. If you want to make them both six and a half, that's fine. Um, I'm just going off. I'm going to lean on Anderson a little bit because he, he kind of sealed the deal in Glendale. And AP fell, you know. AP was right there and had a great opportunity. Great opportunity. Now, I don't know if he was going to beat Roxon or not. But he looked like he wanted some. Like, he looked like he wanted in the fight with Roxon, But he made the critical mistake. And, you know, you can't just ignore the fact that AP made the mistake. You can't. So, anyway, those are six and seven. Uh, both of them are having fantastic seasons. And it's really tough to have them at six and seven. But that's the state of the sport right now. That's how deep it is. Now, number five is Webb. And, and it's tough to put Webb here because Glendale was – not good. I mean, for lack of a better word, it was awful. But should we be surprised? Because Webb, his historical average at Glendale was seventh. 
and he got seventh. So it shouldn't be shocking to anybody to see him have a tough time. And I really wanted to make a bigger point about that. Um, unfortunately, we had some other things we had to cover. I needed to talk about Jet before the first 450 heat race, or else I was going to go with Webb. Um, we have things sometimes that we really need to cover as far as big points of the of the race, um, like really big picture stuff. Uh, but I thought Webb's troubles in Glendale was worthy of being near the top of the show. It just didn't work out that way. Uh, so I'm not going to write him off as far as being done uh, for the season. I, I'm just going to point to Glendale being a really tough race for him. And we kind of should have seen it coming. And it, during the race, I, you know, I was watching going, man, he's going backwards. This is not good. Really not good. But then I had to kind of catch myself and say, well, this is, this is what Glendale does to him for whatever reason, right? I don't know if it's the dirt. I don't know if it's the whoops. You know, they're, really, they're typically really tough in Glendale, which I know has been a problem for him. But I think it's just the dirt. You know, it's, it doesn't reward aggression. You can't use the insides anywhere. You, you know, you basically use the berms, and that doesn't play into his skill set. Like, he can't really cut under the, the main line because there's not enough traction. So I just don't think it plays to his strengths. And if anything, it leans into his liabilities. And that's why I think you see the, uh, the difficulties for Webb and Glendale. Now, number four is Kenny Roxon, And damn, what a ride, right? And if you want to say all the things where Webb struggles, those are things that Ken Roxon does really well. He can find traction anywhere. Um, he's just really good at using the natural flow and momentum of racetracks. That's his strength. And if you let Kenny get a whole shot, he's pretty much gone uh, when he's riding like this. He's really good in the whoops, right? He can blitz whoops as good or better than anybody in the game. And this, when he's got confidence and he's riding at full strength, he's, you know, his body's not a liability and he's not feeling sick or worn down. He's tough to deal with if you let him get out front. And, and I'm shocked that he didn't win San Diego because of that same dynamic. But he just made a mistake, whatever. But most of the time, if you let him get a lead and he's feeling it, it's over. Like mo most people can't really do anything like that with that. Uh, Eli Tomek has been able to in the past, but Eli's a very unique individual that way. But this is, this is Kenny's strength. Get the start on a night where everything's going his way and kind of ride off into the sunset. And he did just that. He knows how to do that very, very well. He's comfortable with that scenario and he, he knows what to do. Plain and simple, he knows what to do uh, with that scenario. And he did it. Great job. You know, this win wasn't the emotional uh, thing that Indianapolis was last year. Not for me, anyway. Maybe, you know, you can never know what it feels like for him. But I just think it was more expected right now because he's riding so well. Last year it was, you know, he switched to Suzuki. He wasn't quite himself. He, hasn't, he hadn't won in a while. That was a whole different thing. This was like, yeah, man, he looks the part. He looks like he could win at any moment. So it wasn't that shocking to see him win in Glendale. And I wouldn't be shocked to see him win again. I, I, not at all. Any weekend where he's riding well and you let him get a start, you better do something about it in a hurry. That's all I can tell you. If you're Jet or whoever, you can't let him build a four or five second gap because he knows what, he knows how to manage that. He's done it. 20 times like that's you know he's a he's a mature 450 
former champion. You know, he knows what to do. Maybe not Supercross champion, but he's won enough championships in other classes to know what to do with that situation. Number three is Eli Tomac. And this was a pretty debated topic between myself and, uh, and Steve this week, as many of you probably heard on the race review. You know, Steve is of the mindset that Eli's kind of out of it, right? He's, he's shown us enough to where he's not going to be a championship contender. He doesn't have the speed. He's 17 points down. There are six, six positions in between he and the lead. I understand all that. It's just not how I see it because the six people in between to me means nothing like that. That's not anything, right? If he, if he wins Dallas and one Daytona or one Daytona and got a podium in Dallas, he could leapfrog three or four guys in one week, let alone two. Like the points are so tight that it's a irre- that's irrelevant, right? Uh, I, I don't even view that as really a thing. It's like saying that I can't jump the triple because there's a double in between. Like you don't even care about the double in between. You're jumping the triple. You're you're going all the way over to the front. It's to me. It's if you're not following that comparison, I, I get it. But to me, it, it makes sense. Is like who cares about the the jumps in between? Like if you're doing a quad, the second and third jumps don't mean anything because you're planning on going all the way to the fourth one. Well, if you're Eli and you're looking at Jet being 17 points up and that's the goal, you're not worried about Plessinger and Anderson, like nor have you really ever been, or Roxon for that much, you know, for for that sake as well. You're worried about Jet and all you're thinking about is closing 17 points down to 12 and 10 and five, right? Like that's that's all you're worried about. It doesn't matter if there's a hundred guys in between. You just need to win races and get to the front and the rest will take care of itself. So I don't put any credence at all in the six riders in between. That That is not a concern for me. His riding and his speed and his pace is all I worry about because we know if Eli finds himself and rides like he did in race three at A2, it's on. Like the championship is in play. If he doesn't and he can't, none of it matters. You could have two guys in between or 250 guys in between. If Eli can't ride to the form that we expect from him, none of that none of that matters. It, it's it's completely off the table as far as a concern. It, it won't matter at all because he's not going to beat, you know, he's not going to beat Jet to win the title if he can't ride his best self, or he's not going to beat whoever you think is going to be champ, Sexton or whoever. So. I don't know. It's just a difference of opinion. No big deal. Um, I'm just not ready to write Eli off quite yet. I started off this season back in December. You can go back and watch the preview podcast and, and the racer X videos we did. I've been saying it all along and I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. It's just what I've felt from the beginning is it was going to take him a long time to get back to his best self. That's what injuries do, especially big injuries, severe injuries, where it wasn't like he hurt his hand like Sexton did and, and just couldn't ride for a little bit. Like he was, he couldn't walk. He couldn't have any weight bearing for a really long time. Then he had to rebuild all those muscles and rebuild your calf muscle, figure out how to put weight back on it. Listen to like Aaron Rodgers talk about his injury and how long it took him to get the basics back. Think about what that translates into being the best supercross rider in the world right while he was sitting around doing nothing jet lawrence was getting better like he was winning every moto in the 450 chase sexton was acclimating to the ktm and 
getting better and, and getting his mind back to where it needs to be. Cooper Webb was getting so much better on the Yamaha. All those things were happening while Eli was doing nothing. Like he was literally sitting on the couch, probably watching hunting YouTube videos or whatever, right? Like that's what injuries are. I've been through it. Every major rider's been through it. The point is you lose a, you lose a lot. It's not, you can't overstate how much you lose yourself, like your fitness, you're the momentum that he had been building up over years, like base fitness, you lose that. And not only that, you lose ground to all the other riders who are consistently getting better through that period. So it's a really nasty dynamic to have a big injury. That's why I didn't expect Eli Tomac to be his best self in January. And and I don't understand how, I, I, okay, I do, because there are a lot of people who haven't gone through something like this, right? Somebody like Steve or Jason Wygant, they haven't had a big injury and had to come back and get back to their best self and go race against the 450 elite. You know, I, I have, I was getting my ass kicked by the 450 elite. Let's be clear, but I was on the same starting line with them. And I know where I compared to them before. And I knew where I compared to them after. And that's something I dealt with more than once. So Eli's doing the same thing. We understand, I understand that it's a different thing. Like he's trying to win. I, I got all that. But the concepts and how it applies are similar. And it's going to take time for Eli to get back. Okay. We've seen flashes of it. And that's usually how it works. There will be days where Eli feels like himself again. But it's really hard to replicate that every single Saturday. And that, that's where the time frame comes into play because the more laps you log and the more bicycle rides you're on and the more cycles of fitness that you go through, the more weekly routines you go through, your body's going to get back there. I, I firmly believe that in March and April, we're going to see Eli again. I, I do believe that. Now, if, you're, if your point is that he's going to be too far out of it for it to matter, then maybe, maybe. Um, I don't know that that's necessarily true because if you look at the parody, the parody is working out for him. It's allowing him to have some bad races and still be relevant. 17 points is not a huge deal. Now you get 30, 35. Okay, that's a whole different thing. That is a completely different scenario. But 17 is not. And if he puts in a good Arlington and a good, good Daytona, 17 could be four or nine or something manageable, right? And that's all I'm really, that's my whole point is it's too early. It's simply too early to count them out. You can't yet. And, and I think it could prove to be a big mistake if we do. And I'm I'm 100% okay with being wrong here. If Eli just continues to, to struggle and flounder around and give up tons of points and he ends up losing the title by 40, okay, I'll, I'll take the L. That, that's fine. No problem. Like I'm, very ready for that to be the scenario that we see, but I'm not ready to say that's a certainty yet. And Steve is, and that's okay. Well, you know, no one's right or wrong. It's just an opinion thing, but I do have him at three. Uh, he almost got on the podium. He's got a couple podiums already, you know, whatever you could say that he should be further back. That's fine. But I'm, I'm looking a little bit big picture coming off an injury, how good he's been the last couple of years, like all those things weigh in. Now, if he continues to struggle, he doesn't get it done in Arlington. He, he puts in some sort of weirdo ride in Daytona. Yeah, he's, I'm moving him back. 
I promise you I'm moving him back. But for now, I'm going to keep him three. Number two is Chase Sexton, and don't judge Glendale. He had a hand injury. He couldn't he couldn't even ride until Saturday. He hurt it on Tuesday, couldn't ride till Saturday. And I'm sure he was on Toradol and all sorts of things just trying to get through the day. So don't put, put much weight into that with him. I expect to see him much better when we get to uh, to Arlington. You know, that weekend off could not have come at a better time for him. And I, I think he'll be fine. You know, he probably took a few days off. Um, and he's just going day by day with how his hand feels. But, you know, once the hand is fine, he'll be fine too. Like, he didn't miss any real time. He crashed on Tuesday, raced on Saturday. You know, he's still training. So I don't expect to see any residual effects at all from Sexton. The real question with Sexton is he is he fast enough to beat Jet? I don't I haven't seen it yet, right? So um, he's been really consistent up until Glendale, but unless he can win, I don't see how you can make him the the championship favorite because you know we talked about this in other places. I don't think you can win a championship like this without proving that you can go out and just straight up win, right? You have to go out and just be able to beat Jet to do it. Like, I don't, I, I believe that. Like, usually, I'm going to say always, the champion in a class will prove at some point during the season that they were the best guy. That almost always happens. Um, very rarely do you see the best guy not end up being champion, right? If you want to talk about, like, James Stewart or guys may, that just crash their way out of things, okay, I, I get it. But that is such a rare occurrence. So for Sexton... The point is, if he's going to be champ, I think he's going to go out, go out and have to win it and prove that he can do it because he still hasn't passed Jet. He still hasn't put that decisive move on Jet that sends that message like, hey, dude, I, I can beat you. Like, you're awesome, sure, but I can beat you. And we, ha- we just have not seen that quite yet. Number one is Jet. He gets the red plate back, five-point lead. Um, and it hasn't all gone to plan this year. We know that, right? But two wins – podium in Glendale like I think he's having a phenomenal rookie season uh yeah it's been great um has it been perfect no you know San Diego was a catastrophe on so many levels uh Anaheim too that crash at the end that last like two laps to go or whatever it was that was horrific dude you cannot do that you cannot do that in that moment uh and I'm sure he learned a valuable lesson there at Anaheim too as well but that's what your rookie 450 season is. It is it is a season of learning. And if you can have the points lead and win races while you're learning, more power to you. That's That says a lot because most guys can't do that. So uh, I have no reason to back away from my Jet Lawrence championship pick. Uh, I think he's the fastest rider. I think he's learning as we go here. Um, yeah, so he stays number one, and, and I'm not shying away from that at all. So that's it for this week. Uh, thank you again to all of our sponsors, Pirelli Tires, been title sponsor from the jump. Guts Racing, check out uh, – oh, we're going to have a question here in a second too. Forgot about that, so don't don't go anywhere. But, of course, Guts Racing, seat covers for power sports, e-bikes, betas, uh, Kawasaki's, everything. Uh, they keep adding things, which is great. Pump Creek funding, rates are still high. Let's be real. But he keeps adding states. That is Zach Morris at Pump Creek funding. So if you do need to buy a house, which a lot of you do, right – I would not suggest refinancing right now. Let's put that out there on the table. I'm giving you my advice. Why would you want to refinance right now? But if you need to buy a house, you should reach out to Zach Morris at Plum Creek Funding and ask about it. Ask him a question. 
I believe his number is 720-212-4685. I don't know why I have that memorized, but I do. Uh, Concept Coatings Design Co., Cerakote, Anodizing, Laser Engraving. They have a full race shop in Temecula if you want to have your own race shop to work out of. Uh, I think it's great for the winter months, which we're in right now to be in California. Use that promo code CONCEPT10 to save yourself some money there as well. Works Connection, they have all sorts of brand new products. KX, uh, the new 2024 KX450, they have skid plates. Uh, they have, I believe the frame guard as well. Um, but they keep releasing brand new products for that 2024 KX450. Uh, the chain gauge came out last year. You can use a promo code JT23 to save yourself some money there. ProGlow Wash, uh, Power Sports Formulated Wash, great company, great people. Going to get to see their, their team next week in Dallas. They're based in Shreveport, but Dallas is the home race for them. So get to see them there. Uh, check out ProGlow Wash. TL Speed Shop, they are based in Wickenburg, Arizona. And they have a side-by-side -side adventure getaway. You can do corporate events. You can go with your friends and family. But everything is set up for you to do it. Um, it's only about 30 to 40 minutes outside of Phoenix. So fly in there. And you can customize whatever, right? If you have an idea, something you want to do, go to California, go to Glamis, go to Baja, Sedona, Flagstaff, whatever. They're open to ideas. What they have is all the equipment and the know-how, right? They know exactly how to do this. And it's just plug and play for you and yours to go, uh, yeah, who doesn't want to go rip around in side-by-sides? So that's a really cool experience. Grant Stone Boots, uh, I will get to see Grant, or excuse me, I'll get to see Wyatt Gilmore and his team um, in Indy. And what a great product. Go to grantstoneshoes.com. The sneakers are their newest thing. Out, well, they have women's boots now, but the, the sneakers are what I'm most excited about. Um, it just opened up a whole new range. So check those out. Um, I got the new, uh, I don't remember the exact name of the color, but it's like a cream color. So I'm waiting for temperatures to warm up here a little bit so I can wear those. But great products, great team. And uh, yeah, I don't think you can beat the quality of, uh, of Grant Stone boots. Fly Racing, of course, as you know, check out that Formula S helmet, uh, flyracing.com slash formula hyphen S to learn all about that as well. Okay, so we have a listener question and uh, I'm gonna pull it up here. So bear with me as I get to it. Uh, and this is from Marcus. I need, he leads in, he's right too. Um, I know you haven't done listener questions in a while. He's asking about uh, Star Yamaha, right? And their official name is Monster Yamaha Star Racing, which I had to learn for TV. Uh, but they ask, you know, how, with how big their lineup is, because you ever see them have, you know, 80, 90, 100% Yamahas on the line in any main event. And you look at their occupancy percentage and it keeps growing by 10% a year. Where does that kind of max out at? Uh, is there somebody at Feld or the AMA or somebody that's looking at this as far as putting a cap on it? Um, it's just something to consider. And, and I've heard this before, right? And if you've asked, if you ask Jeremy Coker about this, he's like, hey, man, if you have 100% of the bikes, you have a 100% chance of winning. And he was kidding, but like somewhat, you know, the, the reality is for your question, Marcus, are they ever going to have all the bikes on the line? No, they're not. Um, you know, these other teams, Honda and Cowie and, and KTM and Gas Gas, uh, Husky, they're, they're all going to stay around. They all are very, very committed to the sport and they're going to have riders uh, that are involved. And what Star is doing, though, 
is they're taking advantage of having what most people consider the best motorcycle right now, right? Like everybody knows that a Yamaha 250 is the bike to have. And it doesn't mean that people aren't closing the gap or making more competitive motorcycles comparatively. But for the last, I don't know, five years, whatever, they've had the bike. Everybody knows that they have the most power. It's that unique engine design and everybody wants to be on it. And that gives them a big advantage, right? So they can get riders for dirt cheap and they can get people on their equipment for virtually nothing. And that allows them to continue expanding their footprint. Now, if you had a bike that was average and this happens too, uh, bikes over time, if the bike's not great, you have to overpay. You have to give riders a big incentive to want to represent your brand and put themselves in a disadvantageous spot. I don't even know if that's a word, but it is a thing. And that is a hit on resources, right? So it works both directions. If you have the best bike, you're going to be able to, and this used to be Mitch Payton. I should add that in. This used to be Monster Energy Pro Circuit Kawasaki. When they had the best bike by far, guys like Chris Gosseler, you look at guys over the years, they all would just go ride there for free. Just give me bonuses and, an, and a way to make money and the best bike, and I'll do the rest. That's where Monster Yamaha Star Racing is now. They don't have to pay these guys very much. Now, some of them they do, right? If you want the best guys, you have to pay them. But some of these guys, Romano and guys, you look at some of the, the guys they're taking a shot with, they're not paying them hardly anything because those guys want an opportunity. They just want a shot on the best bike. So that's... You know, that's the blessed existence that this team is in. And that's why you're seeing them have so many motorcycles, because if Yamaha is willing to fund the equipment and continue to, you know, give them enough budget to have that many motorcycles on the track, it's a win-win for them. So until that changes, until Yamaha no longer has far and away the best 250, and that's my opinion, right? If, if you don't believe that to be true or whatever, fine. But until that perception changes, I don't see them not having as many guys because the opportunity is there. Why would they not capitalize on that opportunity? If you look at Yamaha across the board, they're pushing everywhere, right? They're in their advertising and the podcasts are involved with the motorcycles, um, things like Damon Bradshaw's involvement. They're everywhere. So they're being really aggressive right now. And having that many motorcycles on the racetrack is absolutely a part of that. You look at Club MX, no different. Yamaha is supporting that program as well, right? So they're being very aggressive in the marketplace right now. And for good reason, they have such a great opportunity to, to do so, to capitalize on that. So anyway, thanks for the question, Marcus. That's kind of how I see it. Um, they're just leaning into the door being wide open. If that changes and... I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon, but let's say in 10 years, their bike is not considered the best anymore. Maybe you see that change because not everybody's going to be clamoring and being, be willing to ride for free. That's what it comes down to or pay to ride there. That happens in some scenarios too. People are willing to pay money to ride on a certain team. And of course that makes, you know, makes it a lot easier to have a guy on the team. So that's, that's the dynamic. Anyway, thanks everybody for listening. I hope you enjoyed this week's show. And we will be back next week. See you.